Thank you. Well, tonight, as you can see, we're, I'm discussing skilled and diligent work, workers, or being one. Um, and I'm basing this off Proverbs 22:29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings, not obscure men. Now, before I get into that, I have a story, kind of how this came about. Um, when I first met Peter Scuturini, he, I asked, I don't remember how this came about, but somehow I asked him if he had Facebook, and he said, no, I don't. I use Twitter. You should use Twitter. Okay. So, yeah, so I went home, and I was like, okay, I'll use Twitter. And I went home, I had a Twitter account, but I didn't use it, because Twitter is one of those things that you have to use every day if you're going to use it, because it's kind of like a, you know, day by day, by day by day account of, you know, just whatever. So I go to Twitter, I follow Peter, look at all the very interesting stuff that he's doing, and I'm like, my life isn't nearly as interesting as that, so if I'm going to use Twitter, I better have a good reason. Well, in addition with that, I was trying to read the proverb for every day, and I'll be honest, I wasn't doing a great job of it. I wasn't always reading the proverb. So as I was sitting there thinking about, well, how can I use Twitter, I thought to myself, a good way to do, to use Twitter and both remember to read the proverb is read the proverb, pick a verse out of the proverb, and then tweet that. And now I'm tweeting every day. So that's what I do. I read the proverb, and I tweet a verse out of the proverb. And that's how I came to this, because it was in reading proverbs that I kind of got this whole idea. So, see if this works. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my Twitter handle, Matthias22. Okay, just a little plug there. All right, so Proverbs begin with what I call Shlomo's thesis statement. And he says, The Proverbs of Shlomo, son of David, king of Israel, are for learning about wisdom and discipline, for understanding words, expressing deep insight, for gaining an intelligently disciplined life, doing what is right, just, and fair, for endowing with caution those who don't think, and the young person, me, with knowledge and discretion. Someone who is already wise will hear and learn still more, Someone who already understands will gain the ability to counsel well. He will understand proverbs, obscure expressions, sayings, and riddles of the wise. And I thought, like, hey, that's really good. That's really good for me. And thesis statement is kind of the, um, it's the introduction to a paper. It's, the author says to the reader, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is what you're going to get out of it. So Solomon does what good authors do. is He tells the reader what they're going to get out of it, which I think is great. Now, before I get more into it, I just, you know, couple of these things. Understanding words, expressing deep insight. I mean, that's, that's what I feel like whenever I come, you know, here Tuesday nights every, every week or to Shabbat um, twice a month. Reading the Proverbs has really helped me, you know, understand more. Because, you know, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, but he didn't start out that way. He, he, he was praying to God at the beginning of his reign. He was like, God, I want to judge your people fairly and, and well. Please grant me the ability to do so. And God's like, great! Not only will you be able to do that, I'll make you the wisest person to ever live. So, with that understanding, me reading these Proverbs, I'm, I'm learning, or I'm, I'm going into knowing that Solomon was a pretty smart guy. Okay. Oh, right. So, in reading the Proverbs, I noticed a couple of ones that were similar to something I've seen before. Deuteronomy 28 where Moses talks about the blessing and the curse. Follow the Torah, and you'll get these blessings. Don't follow the Torah, and you'll get these curses. Okay. So, for me, I'm, I'm a software engineer. I program computers for, for a living. And for me, when I read this, this chapter in Deuteronomy, I put my engineer hat on, and I see it in a logical sort of way. And what I call the if-else <laughs> statement. 
This is kind of like cause and effect for those of you who aren't software engineers. <laughs> this is this is pseudocode. This is pseudocode. Yeah, this will not this will not compile an eclipse. Okay. I'm gonna sit over here. Exactly, you could. Okay, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, wearing my engineer hat, this is how I read Deuteronomy 28. Um, the if else statement works like this. You start out with nothing. You have two values, in this case, blessing and curse. Um, they're both set to false, which is basically they're not affecting the program. They have no um, effect at all. They're basically neutral. And then you have this, this if, if, then, else statement. So here it says, if you follow Torah, then blessing is equal to true, which means blessing is now affecting you. Okay, great. Else, which means you're not following the Torah, or you're doing something other than following the Torah, curse is set to true. So me wearing my engineer hat, I read Deuteronomy 28 this way. And knowing that, and then reading the Proverbs, I stumble on what I call the if-else Proverbs, which is, I'll read a couple of these, Idle hands bring poverty, diligent hands bring wealth. So, poverty and wealth set to false. If idle, poverty is equal to true. If diligent, wealth is equal to true. And then the same thing, um, lab forced labor is set to false. Rule set to false. If you're diligent, you'll rule. Lazy, forced labor. Same here. You, if uh, Roasting set to false. Precious wealth set to false. I'm sorry doesn't roast, set defaults. I mean, you can see, you can just apply these, and you can actually apply these a lot with a bunch of the other Proverbs that you read. For those in Gastonia, can you read those out? Yes, I can. So, the first one is, idle hands bring poverty, diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 10, 4 through 5. Second one, the diligent will rule, while the lazy will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 12, 24. A lazy man doesn't roast what he hunted, but when a man is diligent, his wealth is precious. Proverbs 12, 27. A lazy, per, a lazy person wants but doesn't have. The diligent get their desires fulfilled. Proverbs 13.4 The lazy person's way seems overgrown by thorns, but the path of the righteous is a level highway. Proverbs 15.19 And I just apply all the if-else if, the if -else logic to these Proverbs. And I actually have one more. Um, some, I was too big to pull, put up on the uh, thing, but Colby, if you'll read that. Yeah, 25-26. through 26. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hebrew thought uses can right. as well as for. And that's, and that's the interesting thing about the Hebrew poetry parallelism is because it uses the or. Right. It's one or the other. And it's one or the other cleanly. There's no exceptions. It's one or the other, it's not both. And, and so we, we have both. Whereas Greek thought is just, it's always just one or the other. It's, not, it's never in between. It's never can be both. Whereas we, we recognize in Scripture that we have opportunities for both things to be. Right. And these are the or statements. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was trying to make the point is we have a choice. But no matter which choice we make, we're going to get one or the other. Just like in Deuteronomy 28 in Proverbs, uh, Solomon breaks down for us what will happen if we're diligent and what will happen if we're lazy. Okay. So, go next. Next thing I noticed was Solomon hates sluggards. Yeah. <laughs> 
he's not nice to these people. I mean, Proverbs 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is a lazy man to his employer. I mean, and we were just, I have, I mean, most of us here probably have smoke in our eyes. We can't see for like a minute. It's really painful. Uh, Proverbs 18, 9, whoever's lazy doing his worth is brother to the destroyer. If that's not the worst insult you've ever heard, I don't know what is. Okay. Laziness makes people fall asleep, and an idle person will go hungry. Well, no one likes going hungry. That's not as bad as the first one, but still. The lazy person buries his hand in the dish and doesn't even bother to bring it to his mouth. Proverbs 19.24. I mean, this guy, he's not, he's not, he's not pulling any... Yeah. He's not pulling any punches whatsoever. Uh, Proverbs 10, uh, 24. A lazy person won't plow in the winter, so at harvest time, when he looks, there is nothing. I mean, and if, it, if we, I can get someone to do 24, 30 through 34, and Proverbs 26, 13 through 16. All right, so, uh, Joseph. the whole burying a hand in the dish thing. So, it's just, Solomon is, yeah. <laughs> no more Doritos. Forget the whole chip bag thing. Okay, so, with this, him being so hard on the sluggards, and also the previous verses about being diligent rather than being lazy, I thought to myself, okay, how do I not be, whoa, uh-oh, I've hit stop. Top button? No, that's the laser pointer. Okay. How do I not be this guy? How do I not be the sluggard? Okay, so I did the natural thing is, well, obviously there's going to be examples in the, the Bible, the Torah, right, where I can see how this is done properly. So, I get Nehemiah. I call him the diligent worker. Um, I call him this because while he gets credit for, you know, building the wall and, you know, being a, a God-fearing man, I don't think he gets as much credit for being diligent and getting it done. So, I want to break this down. Nehemiah feared Adonai. In the beginning of Nehemiah, he asks a fellow Israelite, what is going on in, in, in Jerusalem? What's going on in Israel? Because he's in Persia. He's serving the king. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So, he, the, the guy's like, oh, it's terrible. It's destroyed. Our people are enslaved. All these terrible things. So, he gets upset. He starts fasting. He gets on his face. He does the whole Daniel thing. He cries out to the Lord, intercedes on behalf of his people. And, uh, and then, then he, had, he does all that. But at the, what I found was interesting, and 
Uh, if someone can get this verse from Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11. Okay, go ahead. I don't think he made that statement after he had finished praying. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I think he was kind of saying, hey God, I'm the cupbearer to the king. So I've got an end with the king of Persia. So I'm already in place. So if you want to use me, you know, it's, it's there. So I, I thought that was really cool. And so and that, that's where I come get this idea is Nehemiah had the esteem of the king of Persia. He was cupbearer to the king. So he was, you know, talking to him a lot. And the king in Nehemiah 2, 2 through 6, he notices... That Nehemiah is upset. Does somebody have that one? Greg, please. Thank you. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant is found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him the time. So, the king cares enough about Nehemiah to notice that he's upset. And he asks him, what's wrong? And Nehemiah praise God and says, okay, well, this is it. Jerusalem is destroyed. It, it, you know, it's just not good in Israel. And I want to go, if it pleases you, please send me to repair my nation. And the king's like, well, how long do you want to go? And, and he tells them the time, and the king and the queen are like, okay, we'll go. And so he goes. And though it doesn't actually say in this, in that passage, how long he's gone, if we look at Nehemiah 5.14, he was there for 12 years. Um, Let's see. Does anybody have that verse? Please. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So, he not only did the king send him, but he actually appointed the gov- him the governor over Judah. Cupbearer, governor. It's a big, big step. And he was there for 12 years. And not a small amount of time. Like in today's society, who are the kind of people who make those kind of commitments? Usually, usually senators, presidents, but that's only for four years. The queen. The queen. 
Um, <laughs> but and but but like people our speed, right? People who are our age or in our you know walk of life, usually people who join the military go for like six years. But nobody nobody commits to doing something for twelve years. So this is where I get that Nehemiah was diligent. He knew ahead of time how long he wouldn't have to be gone to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild his nation, and that's what he did. Nehemiah, yes. That's true. That's also true. Well, I would actually say that there are other times when parents have made physical decisions such as we did when we went to adopt. Mm. We knew that we were going into a position of extending our parenting even beyond that. So right. That's true. That's, that's very true. No, please, thank you. Okay. Brings me to my next point. Nehemiah was a skilled manager of men. Um, I get this because he, he goes and he starts rebuilding the wall, right? He's building the wall around Jerusalem. But while he's doing that, the Israelites get upset. There's a great outcry in the beginning of uh, chapter 5. Um, they are like, we're in bondage. We're being, um, our fields are mortgaged and all these things. Um, we can't do anything. What do you expect us to do? We, we, we are, our, our children are enslaved. Our fields are mortgaged. All these things. Does anybody have uh, this verse right here? 5, 1 through 11. Johnny. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to sub subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the exact money and grain. But let the exacting of the usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. What does that remind you all of? Translation. Correct. So... In the Torah, it talks about not lent. It talks about um, redeeming the fields, redeeming um, your countrymen in the seventh year. So Nehemiah was saying, guys, we need to follow the Torah. We need to do what it is that we are commanded. We should fear the Lord. We should not hold our countrymen and their fields in bondage. And it's also very specific in the Torah that we're not supposed to charge usury. Right. So 
Exactly. And the, the men in that assembly had no response because they knew the Torah. They knew what it said. So Nehemiah not only was building, but he was also diligent to hold his people accountable to the Torah. He didn't just say, okay, it's a bad time. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of construction. We can afford to bend the rules. No, that wasn't his thing. Even though it wasn't fun, he was like, we are going to observe the Torah. He also, while he was holding the people accountable to the Torah, he was also holding the enemies of Israel all back. Um, Nehemiah 4, 15 through 21. Caleb? And it happened, when our enemies heard that it was known to us, that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was, from that time on, that half of my servants worked in construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall, and those who carried burdens, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction, and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another at the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. The twenty-one. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. So, not only did he build the wall, hold the people accountable, but he also devised a strategy with which to keep the enemies of Israel at bay, to fight them off while he was building the wall. Which brings me to my next point. Nehemiah finished the wall in less than two months. Nehemiah 6.15, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. So he held the people accountable to the Torah. He built the wall. And he f- did it while fighting people. Now, I've built a fence before. <laughs> uh, my family, when we lived in Florida, we had two acres of land. And we built a wooden fence around half of the property. Um, so, so it wasn't like a great fence. It barely kept the dog in. <laughs> but it was a fence. And it, you know, I worked on it, and these strapping lads worked on it with me. And we, and of course my father helped. And, <laughs> and we, it took us three weeks, three weeks to finish it. Nehemiah built a wall around Jerusalem. Well, not around it, because I guess there's a part of it that you can't build. But he built a wall. And the circumference of Jerusalem is far greater than the two acres that we lived on. And he did it in two months. So if... We round up, my three weeks becomes a month. He did, he did um, maybe five times what I did in half the time. I mean, that's a, and while doing these things, while, while observing the Torah and fighting his enemies. I mean, I've, if that's not diligence, I don't know what it is. He paid attention to every detail, and he finished early. He was, he was all about it. No. Exactly. He is the antithesis to Shlomo's sluggard. Exactly. He is the opposite of the sluggard, which is why he's my example of diligence. Being skilled. Now, Nehemiah was skilled, but there's another gentleman in the Torah who is definitely the definition of skilled. But let me read these two. 
He who has skill in a matter will succeed. He who trusts in Adonai will be happy. Proverbs 16.20 Do you see a man's skill in his work? He will stand before kings, not obscure men. Proverbs 22.29 I repeated that one because these are pretty much the only ones in Proverbs that refers to being skilled. So, I always mess up his name, but Betzael, the master craftsman. Betzael? Okay, there's a T. This guy was the guy who built the first physical dwelling place of Almighty God here on earth. And in Exodus 21, he was singled out by God to do this. And if someone will pull up Exodus 31, 1-5, he was skilled, and it says this here, he was skilled in many types of craftsmanship. Many types. Like 13. Jonathan. And the Lord said to Moshe, See, I have called by name Bezazel, the son of Uri, the son of Hor, from the tribe of Yehuda, and I have filled him with the Ruach of Elohim, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving of wood, to work in every craft. Now, I don't think. Betzael woke up one morning and suddenly he knew how to do bronze smithing. I think he already had those skills. He already knew how to do gold, silver, and bronze smithing. He already could cut precious stones. He already knew how to do the wood carving. And, and God was like, okay, I see you. You can, you can build my tabernacle. Okay, that's pretty amazing. And not only that, he filled him with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to, with understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and ability to teach others. Not only was he, you know, filled, and not only was he skilled, he's pretty much credited with building the tent of meeting. If you read in Exodus 36, 6 through 38, 31, 1 through 29, and 38, 1 through 9, when it says he, if you go to the top of wherever it starts, it's Betzael did this. He, you know, measured out so many cubits for the, the linen. He, you know, cut the, the cherubim and this, you know, he blah, he blah. So, while I kind of doubt that he did everything, he definitely had a hand in every single thing that went on in the Tent of Meeting. He was the master craftsman. He was the artisan behind the Tent of Meeting. Now, did God tell Moshe how to do it, and was there a definite plan on how? Yes. So he didn't come up with everything. But he's the one who's responsible for building the first dwelling place of Almighty God, and he was skilled to do it. I mean, that's... And he was already... He was ready. God said, I've singled this man out. He's ready. He's going to do it. Oh, and he also feared the Lord because he's still around after the golden cow incident. So, I have... And God still... Because so God says, I've singled this guy out, so I don't, I don't think that he was involved in the whole worshipping of the calf. So... And nor did he help build it. Right. So, here's a man who's skilled, very skilled. I mean, how, how, like, what, 
What kind of tra- how do you get skilled in all these things? I mean, it just boggles my mind. So, I've read the if else. Oh, please, Kobe, go ahead. I think we, we hear a lot in the world how many people try to succeed without skill. Mm. And, like, enthusiasm really only takes you so far. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. YouTube is full of those. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, like Especially in the business world, you see like, self help gurus and things like that. And right. It's just, I mean, once you just read this, the word skill, I mean, I feel like it's underlying so many times, like time after time, man after man, and so I just really like it. John? Talk about a privilege, because this guy's of the tribe of Judah, and not too many people other than the Kohanim got to interact, got to see all of the, the instruments that were in the tent of meeting. So right. talk about a privilege there that not many Israelites ever had. Right, exactly. Shane? To your point, I find it uh, intriguing that he was uh, skilled not only in one thing, but in multiple things, even by today's standards, this being the age of information, as some people say. We don't, I mean, how many skills do we, I have, or most of us in the room are really good at one thing, and we make our living off of that. This man was good at many things, and... Uh, he was a Renaissance man. That's good. No, this was the Renaissance. <laughs> Sean. Just to add to what Kobe was saying, and maybe you know this, but um, it certainly God could accelerate this and also supply natural talent, but I think it's something like 10,000 hours in order to be really skilled at anything. It's, it's this big number, like I think it's 10,000 hours. And if you spend 10,000 hours, then you're skilled at this, this thing. And again, God could accelerate that, but it just seems like to become skilled at something, there's no shortcut for hard work. Right. The Torah says it, and then also from a business perspective or any type of skill perspective, it seems to take a lot of hours to get to where you're an, an expert or a master of anything. Yeah. Praise the Lord for that, because I mean, sluggards quit like along the way. <laughs> exactly. 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 That's exactly the point I'm trying to make, which is God wants to use you, and He will. You know, 
for whatever it is you're doing, raising a family, you know, all these things. If you follow the Torah, you know, you're, you're pretty set. But if you really want to do something cool, get skilled in something. And that, that's the point I was trying to make with that. So going back to Shlomo's thesis statement, Proverbs of Shlomo or for getting wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Going back to the if-else proverbs, idle hands bring poverty, diligent hands bring wealth. Um, going back to the skilled, you know, do you, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. So I have my two examples. <laughs> these guys are awesome. I mean, I want to be these men. How do I be these men? Well, well, I have a, I have another, I have another, I have another one similar to that one. Something that um, my dad has said, which is, if you want to become good at something, teach it to somebody else. So there's that. Exactly. And yeah, like um, I, I posted a quote the other day: "An expert is a man who has made as many mistakes as possible in a narrow field." And yeah, Niels Bohr, he was one of the men who worked on the Manhattan Project. Which is kind of scary for him to say that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> Nuked that one. Okay. So. So, anyway, remembering, you know, what Shlomo said about being skilled and being diligent and looking at these two outstanding men, what are some ways that I can be like them? Exactly. Yeah, that's oh, but before I go into that, let me let me hit this one. What are the commonalities between these two these two men? Well, they both feared the Lord. Obviously, they were diligent. Nehemiah worked steadily until the wall was done. Now, steadily was fifty-two days, but I mean, he worked steadily. But the L worked until the tabernacle was done. Both men had skill. Nehemiah managed men, logistics, and construction. But the L managed men, construction, and taught others. Just. In a great task. Exactly. And I think that's the reason that the king was comfortable sending Nehemiah because he knew that he was going to get it done with Betzael because they knew that they would get it done. Both men were blessed. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 5, 14 through 18, he never drew the governor's salary that he was due. And yet, with all the men, he had like a hundred and something men in his household. He never once went without food. Not once. And Bethel was filled with Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And if that's not a blessing, I don't know what is. And then finally, hearkening back to Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine, both men served kings. Nehemiah was a servant even as a governor of Judah to the king of Persia. And Bethel built the dwelling place of the king of kings. Yes. They may be very skilled at what they did, 
very skilled at leading others. And so they had the quality that they held to, to lead the others and motivate right. the others too to meet their standards. Right. Great. Yeah, that's, that was what I kept thinking is that they had like a, a passion and enthusiasm for what they were skilled at. So right. that was, Charisma. yeah, they were very charismatic and they just, people were drawn to them. And mm -hmm. they were building a wall with the spear in the other hand. I mean, exactly. they were doing things that most people don't do because of the leadership they had. Yep, that's exactly it. Right. <laughs> they were no longer sluggers. Yeah, and we see that often in, you know, those of us who do manage people or have managed people, there is that one or two guys who are sluggers, but when the, you have a leader who is charismatic, who's excited, who wants to get the job done, and everybody jumps on board, well, that slugger is like, oh, okay, just jump on board. So there are no sluggards in, when you, your leader is diligent. Not know that one. <laughs> He's the brother-in-law. Jonathan, were you gonna say something? Mm. Yeah. So, two amazing guys, um, both diligent, both skilled. They definitely are the men that Shlomo was talking about in his proverbs about being skilled and being diligent. So I have those. I have the examples. How do I be like these men? So, okay, go ahead. I almost think it's more amazing for the men who don't have those fathers and they excel. That's amazing to me. Exactly. So, that's all. Exactly. So, Colby. <laughs> That's good. We don't try to make people happy, we just hire happy people. 
Exactly. <laughs> okay, so how do I be like these men? Well, fear is the beginning. Shlomo pretty much harps on this throughout the first like five chapters of Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of Adonai is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 4.7, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Proverbs 2.6, for Adonai gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So, fear being God is holy, God is sovereign, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to follow his Torah, and in doing that, that's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of understanding. All the things required for being skilled and diligent. So, and, you know, we're all here. So, obviously, we've got this down. So, that's the, that's, but that's always the first thing. You have to start with that. Because if you don't start with that, nothing else, everything following this can fall out of place. Train your hands. Experience required. Is required. Nehemiah and Bethel were both already trained to do the things that they did. They already had the skills. So we have to train our hands so that we're ready for whatever great task is given us. Now, our great task might be building a family. Our great task might be the next project we have coming down the pipeline. But it's a task, and we should train our hands to be prepared for whatever it is. This is something I've heard said. I think my father said this. Wisdom is knowledge that has been applied. Learn and apply. So... Get the knowledge and then apply it. You can't be useful if you don't know anything. God can't use you. He can't use you to build a family. He can't use you to, you know, whatever, if you don't know anything. To Shane, as actually a couple slides ahead, this is the age of information. And this is something I, I, I'm kind of passionate about, which is we have all these resources. We have the Internet. We have, well, we have the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> We can, the, the, the ability to self-teach ourselves is, the, the, just the resource is there. The, the knowledge is there. The information is there. We have the ability to teach ourselves all kinds of things if we but had the self-discipline and motivation to do so. Google is our friend. Greg. Right. For not being able to complete something or do something because of how many resources are available to you. Exactly. Uh, this is something, I mean, I can't say my father because he has it, but this is something that his father didn't have. Uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was, um, what is the term? Draftsman. Draftsman. He drafted, um, like, steel buildings. He did not have Google. He had to learn the hard way. If he did live now, he would probably use... Um, AutoCAD. He would use AutoCAD. And, you know, people can use... Yeah, the universal sign for AutoCAD. If, for the people in... For the people not watching, I'm moving my hands in a clockwise manner. Clockwise and counterclockwise manner. So, yeah. There you go. He, my grandfather did not have Google. And yet, somehow, he was able to do these amazing things. And the guy was a clown. Like, he was a professional clown, too, so. And he was on Broadway. I mean, he learned, my grandfather, actually, if you, if you want a pretty good, um, pretty cool thing, so, my dad is really good at what he does, but his grandfather, like his grandfather, his father, my grandfather, he was a draftsman, so he, he did all that, you know, drawing of steel buildings. He was a professional clown, 
he was in a barbershop quartet. I mean, I wish I could have met him. He was an awesome guy. So, but he didn't have Google. We have Google. Why can't we be better than him, better than Betzael, better than Nehemiah? Because we have Google. I mean, <laughs> we have resources that we're not using. We have. I'm not. I okay. D dis D disclaimer. <laughs> I was being. I was being. Not everybody here is a programmer, so I was using Google as kind of a. Google is kind of the representative of internet. I am no way affiliated with Google. <laughs> John. Exactly. You can take an entire course in college using Google and not have learned anything. Johnny. Well, it's a common also verb now when it's really actually a noun. But, but I'm using it as a noun here. Just Google that. And, and, um, but to, to the point is, to your point also, is that not only do we have, you know, that, that's why we're able to push the boundaries now, or should be able to push the boundaries, is because we have everything, everyone before us in whatever field of topic you've chosen to pursue, you've got everything that everybody before you has done. You've got access to it at least. Yep. So that's, that's why we should be able to push the boundaries even more so today. Joseph. I think they're... I'm agreeing with you. Mm. Exactly. And you got to be in the, in, the, in the shop, cut off a couple of fingers, learn how the bandsaw works, and practice. Yep. And knowledge we can get from Google. Exactly. Experience and skill comes through time, practice, and diligence. And I have met a lot of young men who are astounding with their knowledge and are just yeah, and that exactly then that's pretty much what I was about to say not to take away from the whole experience required thing that's why this is first you know you have to be you have to get out there and actually do it um, and this is why I think working and working and getting experience is better than going to college because go to college you get all this knowledge but no application um, I spent uh, three months in college and I learned more in the four years that my dad, obviously it was more time, but still, I learned more, I had more practical application of knowledge in the four years that I spent with my dad training me than I learned in any of those classes. And that's why I stopped going. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, if you have the opportunity to go and, and train with whoever it is that you're trying to learn, that skill, that's 12 times better than reading it on Google or um, learning it in a class. But for those of us who have skills and we're trying to get better and knowledge is required, we have Google. Skill 
that's back to what uh, my dad was saying about the 10,000 hours. You have to put down in the hours. That's like um, Yeshua's conversation with the wealthy man. He, the wealthy man, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Yeshua basically says what the pianist says is, sell all your things and follow me. Which is essentially saying, spend the rest of your life obeying my commandments and following my way of life. And, and the wealthy man, he wanted the innocent gratification. He didn't want the, basically the, the life, the toil. That comes with being follow Yeshua. So, training your hands, very important. Sleep. Sleep is the great equalizer. <laughs> Get, give a man eight hours of sleep and less, uh, and less time to do something and give another man who knows as much as that man less sleep but more time to do something. The man with more sleep will finish. The man with less won't. And we've all suffered the effects of sleep deprivation at one time in our life or another. So I think we can all agree, without those of us without sleep, um, you find it harder to think, find it harder to perform certain tasks. Um, Ryan, go ahead. So, um, yeah, so I have the quote up here, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Benjamin Franklin didn't make that up. Yeah, so maybe Benjamin Franklin isn't the best example, <laughs> but that doesn't mean his statement is, is less true, nor do I think... This was, I mean... So, 
So in other words, we have an example of knowledge not applied. Exactly. So he knew this, and yet, yeah. So, But I don't think he got this out of the vacuum. This, I think, comes directly from Proverbs. Um, it says in Proverbs 20.13, If you love sleep, you will become poor. Keep your eyes open, and you'll have plenty of food. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11. Lazy bones, how long will you lie there in bed? When will you get up from your sleep? I'll just lie here a bit, rest a little longer, just fold my hands for a little more sleep, and poverty comes marching in on you. Scarcity hits you like an invading soldier. And when scarcity hits, your health drops. That's terrible. And I wanted to... And I, I, I thought of this, right, we need, a, we need like um, somebody like um, James Earl Jones or Liam Neeson to like read this in like a very authoritative voice and just, you know, say that. This, this slide here is uh, timely for, for me and for what we're trying to do because uh, one of the challenges that I found in uh, learning Torah and, and saying the prayers is it's not part of my culture. I, you know, we come from a different culture, you know, and um, so in order to to do that, you have to wake up earlier. If you're going to pray, or if I'm going to pray, and we got to wake up earlier. So where that starts, though, is not then; it's actually the night before. And um, so we've had several false starts, but right in the middle of a new. Uh, effort to go to bed early and uh, wake up early, say the prayers, and still be on time to work. And um, it's going well so far. But um, the other thing I was going to add to this. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> three days in. Tomorrow's day two. Okay. But the other thing I was going to add to this is um, I don't know where this comes from. It's similar to the early to bed thing. But. Um, my wife says that the hours of sleep that you get before midnight are actually of higher quality than the hours of sleep you get after midnight. My mother used to say, nothing good ever happens after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's true anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, he's not here, so I can talk about uh, my oldest son. Uh. He is, has had a habit of prayer for such a long time that He's able to accomplish it all every single time, and it's because it has become so part of his life. He feels like he's totally missed out. He doesn't get it. So, you know, the encouragement is that if you make it a pattern of your life and if you're consistent in it, it becomes so much a part of your life that it's that it actually is not difficult, and then it's a part of your culture. Exactly. Yeah, well, if you, it's, it's the idea that you know you do something enough times, you get good at it. Good at something, you enjoy doing it. So if you enjoy doing it, you're going to do it often. You know, it's this idea of forming a, a habit. You know, you know, Stephen Covey goes into that with you know, the famous seven habits of highly successful people. Yeah. And you know, it's we are um, we are we need to be a slave to our habits, and those habits need to be good habits. The funny thing is, I didn't have this slide originally in my presentation until um, let's say today's Tuesday so um, Monday morning 
I had gotten four hours of sleep. Because the previous night, well, I don't know if that was because, but I just couldn't sleep that night. Um, and I went to sleep at 3, woke up at 7, and I had no sleep. And I went to work, and it was just bad. So I was like, sleep, important. So, want to be diligent, want to be skilled, get those 8 hours. Fight the snooze. There's an inverse problem to that problem as well. Well, too little sleep can definitely be detrimental to your productivity, to your skill. Too much is as well. Yeah. Exactly, which is why, back to the sluggard, exactly. Too much sleep is, is bad. And that's why I think it took Thomas Edison 2,000 tries to make the light bulb, because he would sleep for four hours, wake up, work for 16, sleep for four hours, wake up, work for 12. I mean, maybe if he had got more sleep, it would only take him, him five, 500 times. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah, it was. Exactly. To make a light bulb. And that's a great segue to my next slide, which is be ye optimistic. And that's an apt example. And this is something I learned from my father because um, something I, I've said, which is my, my dad is so optimistic, if the sun went out, he could step in and take its place. I've never, I've almost never heard him say something that was not optimistic. Like, to the point of, really, you're going to try to do that? Okay. <laughs> so, how does one be optimistic? Well, I get Colossians 3, too. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. If God is on our mind. If the things of heaven are on our mind... If we're thinking about God, like we're reading the proverb every day, we're reading the, the Torah portion of the Torah portion, the Aliyah, I think it's called. If we're reading that every day, we've got that on our mind and our hearts. How can we not be optimistic about the future, optimistic about what we're doing? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. With God, all things are possible. So um, we should approach every task with the thought that there is a solution to this. I just haven't found it yet. Positive thinking brings positive results. Um, another, this quote, and I was asking him today where it came from, though I couldn't remember, but don't ask why, ask why not. Why can't this work? Why doesn't this work? Um, this is something my dad says often. I just don't know where it comes from. Um, and then lastly, this is a quote from Tim Ferriss, uh, reality is negotiable. And that's to say not necessarily that we Everything we do is going to be successful because it's not. Um, it's more to say we should try to find the solution. If we don't find the solution, it's, it shouldn't be from lack of optimism. It should be from lack of attempt. Um, you know, failure is merely an opportunity to learn. So even failing is we should be optimistic about, hey, I failed. That means I learned something. And something I like to say is optimism is confidence without arrogance. So we're confident about what we're doing, but we're not arrogant about it. So, cause that's, and that's a thin line. We have to walk a thin line between being optimistic, being confident about what we're doing, and the reverse of that, which is being arrogant in our ability. Because um, God hates the proud, or God humbles the proud, brings low the person who is not humble. Discipline and self-discipline. 
Proverbs 6.23. For the mitzvah is a lamp and the Torah is a light and reproofs that discipline are the way to life. Learning from mistakes and accepting criticism is key. And we were discussing this at Kobe's house last night. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Uh, There's no slack for people who, just as Solomon doesn't like people who are sluggards, he doesn't like people who can't accept criticism. We should view failure as a way to succeed. We should view somebody coming and telling us, you know, we're doing something wrong as room for improvement. You know, um, it says in Proverbs also, it says, it's your enemy who doesn't tell you when you have something wrong. I mean, it's, it's, and it's a friend who tells you when you have something wrong. And I, the, the verse escapes me. But if you think about it that way, even the person who doesn't like you or, does, or you don't like, when he comes and tells you you have something wrong, he's being your friend. So we should be ready to accept that. And not internalize it saying, oh, I'm bad. But take it and say, okay, I'll get better at that. Hebrews 12.11. Now, now, all discipline, while it is happening, does indeed seem painful, not enjoyable. But for those who have been trained by it, it later produces peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. This, to me, is talking about self-discipline. If we are diligent and we self-discipline ourselves in you know, praying every morning, in training our hands, and fearing the Lord, we will get peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. We will be successful. This guy is an American um, writer. I don't know what he's written, but I found this quote to be very apt. I write when I'm inspired, and I see to it that I'm inspired at 9 o'clock every single morning. So, writers, you know, they suffer from writer's block, but this guy apparently didn't because he was inspired at 9 o'clock every morning. So he was there, he was diligent, and he disciplined himself to do it. Uh, well, I can't speak to that. I don't drink coffee, but I've heard it said. So, the grand recap. In the Air Force, they tell you to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Okay? So this is you don't, so you don't forget. Adonai promises us a blessing or a curse. Laziness brings curse. Diligence brings wealth. Or blessing. However you... Whichever, actually, both you want. But blessing you want first. Nehemiah are examples. They feared Adonai. They were skilled and diligent in their work. And they were blessed. How to be a skilled and diligent worker? Fear out an eye. Train your hands. Sleep or fight the snooze button. Be optimistic. Practice self-discipline and accept discipline. And, you thought that was the end. The end game. Proverbs 37 through 9. I have asked two things of you. Don't deny them to me as long as I live. Keep falsehood and futility far from me and give me neither poverty nor wealth. Yes, provide just the food I need today. For if I have too much, I might deny you and say, Who is that an I? And if I am poor, I might steal and thus profane the name of my God. While we all would like to be Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or, you know, Donald Trump. Yeah, I was about to say that. I decided not to. <laughs> we, we don't, that's not what we need. It's really not what we want either. What we want is we want to be successful in what we're called to do, which for me, and I'm going to speak for me, 
but you can agree with this, which is I want to raise a family in Torah to observe the Torah and to be multi-generational in that. Um, I want to have enough to provide for my family every day and be able to come home and spend time with my, my family and, you know, just rest in the work that I have on the Shabbat and just throughout the week. That's what I want. I don't necessarily want millions of dollars because I've seen those men and they're not happy. I want only what I need for the day. Now, if God decides that's a million dollars, that's fine, but <laughs> I only want what I need for today. And so, in doing that, and to be able to achieve that, to be able to do that, I want to be skilled and diligent. And that's, that's the end game. Because what, what we're looking for is not riches of this world, but the next one. I'd rather get to heaven and have my children to, you know, seven generations later, and we're all there. That's what I would like to have. That's what I would prefer over having, being a millionaire in this world. Praise God. Do I get the point? <laughs> I uh, was very impressed with your presentation, Brock. I liked how you used uh, Nehemiah and Bezazel uh, to tie that into what Shlomo is teaching in terms of having a skill. And when you have that in place, 
opportunity to use you. You know, I, I see that lived out in the Apostle Paul, you know, being raised in Tarsus and also being able to uh, converse with the Greeks. Jonathan and I were talking about that on our way here on Mars Hill, how he was able to take what Homer had said as the Greek poet and prove how we're all God's children. So there definitely is value in having the skill so that God can use you to reach people or whatever yep. it is that he's called you to do. So I was very encouraged to. So thank you. Praise God. Hopefully. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because that's what I was trying to say, because I, no means, embody those proverbs, so I'm glad you got that. Soft-spoken. Really, really low volume. Really low volume. Got it. Thank you. Um, I like how what you said had real-world application, and you gave examples of that. A lot of people will say something, just leave it at that, and not give you practical. 
is actually which is Jonathan said, I've actually seen that, and I've learned I've learned that from you. So the student becomes the teacher where you have demonstrated the ability to take criticism very well, and you know, 20 minutes later, be over it, even though it's hard, and then be applying it. And I think over the past four or five years, you've actually taught me how to do that as the student teaching the teacher. And, and tonight, now you're the teacher. be lying if we said we don't look at everything we read from through the lens of our experience. So that's my lens. No, please, I want to hear it. I should put that on the slide, draft for success.
time to time you're a little soft-spoken, you got to speak with power to get to the other side of the room. Because if you're successful as we expect you to be, you're not going to be speaking to 20, you'll be speaking to 200 or 2,000. And you need to be able to do it when the yutz that's supposed to put together the mic busts it. And you've got to do it with your lungs. Hmm. That's you were good. timely. You were the first one here. That's outstanding. Your discussion points led to natural segues. That's really hard to make happen. It doesn't happen by accident, but it's hardly able to be done deliberately. But the flow of your material was so natural that as we began to talk about it, you'd hit on somebody and you'd be able to say, well, that's exactly where I'm going. That's great. You knew the material. It was pretty obvious. You'd studied it. You knew it. You knew it. You connected with everybody here. You connected with the guys that don't read problems very often. You even connected with the non-techies. You call the men by name. That's really important. When you know the names, it makes them want to connect. It makes them stay engaged in what you're teaching. You allowed others to read the scripture from time to time, and you didn't call on the same guys every time just because they're the fastest with the, with the pages or with the iPad or whatever. Mm. Walk over there. Well, that's the best way to learn how to laser. Okay. You a laser, and you must point to the screen, and you need to draw my eye to something. Okay. Spot that laser one time. Everybody's eye will go right to it. Okay. But your your slides were laid out nicely, so it was actually a mistake to draw me in and using up my. Back. <laughs> if you had just gestured to. Top of the Praise God.